Good morning. Has anybody, everybody noticed our banner out front we've had the last three weeks? Isn't that nice? Okay, and have you, if you're not familiar with the new, new sharing flyer we have, this uh, says, uh, so many voices, so many interpretations, how do you uncover the truth? You notice the three circles, science, experience, and scripture, and it goes through the, 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 um, the Bible texts that support the science and the support the scripture and support, support the experience, and then what happens when you separate the two, science without the other two leads to godlessness, experience without the other two leads to mysticism, and scripture without the other two, it's, there are currently 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support them. And so scripture alone leads to confusion. And so we've got the integrative evidence-based approach with our website and a little scan bar where they can scan right to our website. So these are out there available for you. Do you like the graphic? And you like the sign out front, the banner? Well, let's give Dean a round of applause and thank him. Because... Dean is so good and helps design all these things, and you know it just it makes makes the sharing a lot. And then another announcement that some of you have heard if you've been watching us on Facebook is that I got a notice this week that my book is going to be translated into Korean, the new one, the God the God shaped brain. So it'll be available in Korea. I, I don't know the exact release date, but they've signed a contract with a Korean publisher who wants to translate it and put it in Korean. I thought that was neat. So, all right, let's begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will be with us to lead us into the truth, transform our hearts and minds, bring us into unity of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing um, lesson number seven in the quarterly Revival and Reformation, the titled Unity, the Bond of Revival. Unity, the Bond of Revival. And if you think about the title, Unity, what does unity mean to you? Pardon? Togetherness. Any other comment? Then unity mean to you? Like mind. Like mind. Any thoughts on what humanity, human relationships, would have looked like had Adam and Eve not sinned? If Adam and Eve would have stayed loyal and had children on planet Earth, any idea of what human relationships might have looked like? Like they do today? She says, hard to imagine. Do you think they would have had unity? So, what would you suggest interferes with unity? What, uh, what obstructs unity? Selfish. Selfishness. Selfishness. Any other thoughts? Fear. Fear, over there. You see, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid God came looking for them in the garden. What was the state of Adam's and Eve's unity when God said, Adam, where are you? What did Adam do? Did he stand by Eve and side by side uh, in a unified front? Is that what happened? No. He separated from her. What? It was the woman. And how do you think Eve responded to that? Thank you for being so truthful. <laughs> Honesty is always the best policy, Adam. Is this how Eve responded? Didn't the unity break before that when she went to the tree by herself? Well, you know, they were separate but together in the garden. Right. Uh, so they were not at each other's side. So are we saying unity is physical unity? Or are you suggesting unity was when she believed the line he hadn't believed it yet? Yes. And then when he... Pres- when, when 
She presented it to him. He chose to unify with her. And it resulted in disunity. <laughs> right? Um, how do you think Eve felt? Think she felt betrayed? Hurt? By what Adam did? It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. So what caused the disunity in the first human relationship? Disobedience. Any other thoughts? Believing lies resulting in... What do lies believe result in? Broken trust and broken love. Yeah, lies believe broken trust and broken love, and broken trust and love results in selfishness, fear and selfishness, watching out for something. I'm afraid you've got to watch out for me now. So, with all this in mind, how do lies, fear, and selfishness, those, those three, lies, fear, selfishness, how do they undermine unity today? Or do they? We're at, well, I'm asking, what are the obstacles and obstructions to unity in the church? Would lies, fear, and selfishness have any role to play in, in the obstacle to, to achieving unity amongst us? Do we have... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that through the years we've kind of created an atmosphere, a church, like one of that 34,000. And somehow we hang on to having to be right and, you know, we can't let go of that. And so whether it's right or wrong, it gets, we get so attached to it that we will fight for it and it ends up hurting not only us but those. Yeah, and we should think about that. That's an excellent point. We're going to come to that and explore that whole dynamic here in just a second. That's absolutely right on. Um, what is God's solution to, to the disunity problem? Or what is God's solution that brings unity? Truth. Truth, love, freedom. Okay, truth, love, in an atmosphere of freedom. So the Holy Spirit, somebody might say the Holy Spirit, right? Which is the spirit of truth and love. Or Jesus, he's, he's, he, we're all united under one head. Jesus is the embodiment of I am the way, the truth. He's the bottom of truth and love. Or the Bible, right? It's the source. I mean, it is the written expression of truth and love. Or God, he is the source of truth and love. Do you notice the, the truth and love thread is, 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 the, is the thread that they're all working one truth and love. This is the method. Truth destroys lies. Remember what causes disunity? Lies believed. Truth destroys lies, wins to trust. We open the heart and trust to God. He pours his love into our hearts. We stop living to protect self, start living to help others. That's what happens. So if God's solution is truth, love, brought by the Bible, brought by, uh, taught by the Bible, brought by Christ, administered by the Spirit, then how does Satan so successfully counter the Bible, the Spirit, and Christ's administration of truth and love and keep us in such disunity? What Johnny said... By lies. How about this lie? What kind of lies operate in the church that obstruct unity? How about this one? Unity is found in correct doctrines rather than in personal relationship with Christ that changes the heart. Do you think, now some might say, well, I'm making a straw man. I can hear it already. You're making, it's, a, it's a false dichotomy. It's, it's when you have a personal relationship with Christ, you will have correct doctrines. This is what they'll say. I can hear them. I hear, I hear those that are doctrinally focused already wanting to criticize this. Really, I just point the examples that were used in the lesson of the upper room when they came into one accord 
under the Spirit, were they all in agreement doctrinally? Or did Peter later, after that time, have to be corrected doctrinally on who he should eat with? And, and were there still issues of circumcision that had not been corrected yet? They were not in unity on doctrine. So it's not a false dichotomy. They were in unity. So the lie that we can get sucked into is unity happens when we all get the right doctrine. How about other lies that because unity is found in correct doctrine, we must have doctrinal police to examine doctrines and determine who is, who is of the unified faith. Maybe doctrinal police isn't the correct word. What would we call it? Maybe something like, what would we call it? Uh, Biblical Research Institute? <laughs> yes, Russell. Well, history has shown us that those who are unified in doctrine um, are not necessarily in unity. God came to earth, those unified in doctrine killed it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, if we believe the first lie, because unity is found in correct doctrines, we must attack other institutions that hold different doctrines. And so we have to have evangelistic seminars to go out and attack the other institutions that don't teach the right doctrines. I've never been to one of those, have you? <laughs> is this how unity is found? Do we wonder why we struggle for unity? Unity is found in correct behavior. Proper dress, proper diet, day of worship, rather than in a change of heart, motive, found in our relation with Jesus Christ. This is another lie. We'll have unity if we all wear the same type of clothes, dress the same way, eat the same foods, worship on the same day. We'll have unity. Unity is found in accepting legal solutions to the sin problem rather than heart transformation. We all have the same atonement model. We'll be unified if we can do that. Um, unity is found by conformity to the vote of church leadership rather than in unity of a love relationship with God that changes the heart. If we follow the leadership of the church, we have a problem, we go to leadership, the conference and general session, we'll vote and we will have unity. The idea that if someone believes or practices religious rituals that are different than you, that their practices are sinful. This idea, does it promote you? Is is it out there? If somebody does this ritual, they sprinkle instead of immerse for baptism. It's sin. They they genuflex and do this. That's sinful. They worship on a different day of the week than you do. It's sinful. Do we have ideas like that in our heads? Is it true? Does it bring unity? Is it sin to wear jewelry? Have you ever heard that one? Sin to wear jewelry. They're behaving different than me. It's sinful to wear jewelry. Is it? And what about the prodigal's father who when he came home put a ring on his finger? Hmm. And that father represented who? God, yeah, or Jesus, yeah. Or is it sin to eat meat? Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 with what? Fish. Veggie fish, right? Okay. Is it sin to attend church on any day of the... On any, is it sin, or is it okay to attend church on any day of the week? Or is it only one day of the week that it's okay to attend church on? 
So Wednesday night prayer meeting is sinful. Or do you have to attend church on Saturday? Wednesday night is, is sinful, is that right? How about Sunday morning? Or do you have to attend church on Saturday? If you miss Saturday, no, you can go all seven days, that's okay, but you can't miss the seventh. You have to go on that day. Is that sinful? Why do some people get angry and upset when others believe or practice differently? Why are some in the church upset if others worship on a different day or wear jewelry or eat a different diet or eat at a restaurant on Sabbath or believe their deceased loved ones are in heaven or their deceased loved ones are not in heaven? Either way, why do some get upset when somebody else believes differently? They're scared to be wrong. Oh, yes, they're afraid. The belief, they're insecure. It's fear. What is it that causes division? Lies. Fear and selfishness. When somebody believes differently, it makes us insecure. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm scared. I'm, I'm very confident. I have my doctrines built, my little box, and I feel safe in my box. Don't mess with my box. Don't throw any ideas across me that could upset my, my little secure, safe world. And so we have to, to, have to punish and, and, and hurt and put down those. But think about it this way. Do we get angry or upset? Do we get angry or upset if, if as non-smokers, most of us are non-smokers, if someone comes up to us and tells us they believe that cigarette smoking helps their lungs work better? They really believe it and they got, they're smoking. Will we get angry at them and upset? We will? <laughs> we will? Will we get angry or will we be, 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 be mystified? Really? You think that? Really? Do you? Is there, is there anger that you have? Do you get threatened by that? How about if somebody tells you that they don't believe brushing and flossing does any good, so they won't brush and floss? Do you get upset and, just, and angry at that and, and need to take some action against them? She says, only if you're married to them, you've got to kiss them. <laughs> okay, yes. This one's uh, back about unity. Jean says, unity is not about losing individuality, rather about atonement, atonement, United in purpose and motive. Yes, so what we're talking about. So how is it this, he's pointing out where unity is going. This is the church states. These, these, these platitudes are given in all denominations, I believe. I don't think there's a denomination out there that wouldn't want this unity, atonement, this oneness in Christ, but, but it doesn't happen. We have division. 34,000 different Christian groups currently claiming the Bible. Why? I'm suggesting because we have these ideas about the differences between us. That somehow that, that the, the externals are what matter, when in reality it's, do we love God and love others more than self? This, this is the deal. Um, so do we get threatened by people who, for instance, want to live unhealthy lifestyles? Do we get threatened by that and say, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe smoking is healthy and I should start smoking. <laughs> no, we go, I'm sad for you. I'm sad you choose to do that. I wish I could help you see a different way. Yes? Just a minute ago you asked, how does Satan work to create this disunity? Maybe it's by getting us to think about more and more and more external details. And the more details there are, the more he has opportunity to work disunity because it's this detail and that detail and arguing over this specific and that specific, rather than the general overall picture of loving God and each other more than ourselves. 
Any, any comments? I think it's well said. Yeah, over here. One of the main principles that military strategists use is divide and conquer, as well as with an espionage misdirection. And the way I see it right now is Satan's been using that to divide Christians, especially, you know, in our church. And just trying to misinform us and get us all to break up into our little groups and, of course, react aggressively towards each other. Yeah, well said again. This is exactly. And Christ is, of course, bringing everything under one head back into unity, Jesus Christ. In our own church, do we deal with differences in love or with fear and selfishness? In our own experiences, when people differ, do we deal with compassion, love, grace, peace, or do we get insecure and become fearful, get defensive? I don't want to read that. I heard that brother so-and-so is a heretic, and I'm not going to read anything he wrote. Yes. In my own experience, um, those with whom I disagree, um, the ones who get the most defensive are the ones who don't know me and don't care. Um, you know, I can talk to my friends, and if we come to a disagreement, we eventually just go, well, I see it differently, that's fine. You see it differently, cool. It's all right. But there are others who attack instead. Um, and to me, it just, it just shows what's in their heart. You know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if there's anger and defensiveness going on, that's what's in the And if you see the anger coming out and defensiveness, it's usually an, an indicator of insecurity and fear. Yeah, so that's right. Is there a difference between attacking ideas? In other words, attacking lies by presenting truth. Truth is destructive to lies. Is there a difference between that and attacking people? Yes. I think the way I see it is it's judgmental to judge other people on how they worship God. And actually, to me, it would be blasphemy from the standpoint you're assuming God's role only he should be able to judge if this is worshipable. Yeah, I think this is well said, and it goes back to how we view God's law. I've used this metaphor before, but imagine that uh, you know uh, we're in an HIV ward. HIV can manifest in people. AIDS can manifest in people in different ways. Some people can have lesions of the skin called, called Carposi sarcoma. Some people can have cytomegalovirus of their, of their retinas and go blind. Some people can have pneumocystis coronae pneumonia and have lung disease. And, and imagine we had a ward where they had a group of the blind, a group of the skin lesions, a group of the, the coughing pneumonias, all suffering with AIDS, all dying with the same condition. And, and those over here coughing or criticizing those over here, um, with uh, with uh, with the blindness, and those with the blindness are 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 are, are criticizing those with the lesion. But anyway, they're all criticizing each other and making fun and pointing out because they have different symptom manifestations of the same disease. <laughs> and I think this is what you're talking about: judging others. When when Jesus said, "Hey, get the mote out of your own eye before you take the or the beam out of your own eye before you take the mote out of your brother's eye," I try to. And and we need to look past the externals and realize that people are on a journey. Um, I know, for instance, there are some people that in the Christian community that really come down on contemporary Christian music. And you see these presentations, it's got a beat, it's got a beat, it's of the devil, it's of the devil. Well, I can tell you there are people that are immersed in rock culture that is really harmful music. The lyrics and stuff are very vile. And, the, and they have... 
been able to transition out of that through contemporary Christian music, where they, they listen to contemporary Christian music, and they find a better message in that music, and they find Christ. Yeah. Now, contemporary Christian music might be offensive to somebody who's only listened to, to Brahm, Bach, and Beethoven their whole life. But to somebody who's listened to acid rock, it might be a, an actual uh, a breath of, of heaven for them. And for us to then judge, I think, is exactly your point. We don't know where everybody's walk is coming from, but where God is reaching them. So can, can you love somebody who believes differently than you? Yes. Back on the HIV groups, there may be one group that's receiving, let's say, some experimental uh, drugs, and the other two aren't. That can cause some... Or, or if you're going to go, if you're going to take it down the treatment mode rather than just the symptom mode, yes, then there's actually one treatment that cures and a thousand counterfeit remedies that don't cure. There's one treatment that cures our condition, and there's a thousand counterfeits that don't. Yeah. Um. So we can love people who who believe differently than us. I saw that very. Eagerly said, so. can we fellowship with people who believe differently? In Jesus? But what about the warnings? Come out and be separate from them. What about bad company corrupts good character? What about if you're weak, don't eat it. If you're strong enough, go ahead and eat it. Yeah, what if, yeah, what if you're weak, then don't eat the, the meat offered to idols. But if you have strong faith, go ahead and eat it. No. <laughs> if you're weak, stay out of bad company. If you're weak, stay out of... The, the bad company, if you have faith and, and you're settled in your beliefs, then go and associate and witness the truth. So in other words, if you're going into social relationships because you're insecure and needy and you need people to like you and you can't stand confrontation and you can't stand rejection and people might get mad at you if you don't say just the right things that they want to hear, then maybe you might not want to associate people who believe too much different than you. But if you have peace with who you are and peace in your relationship with God and you, you can stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the face of criticism, and you have a compassion for people and a love for people, and you want to share with them uh, truths that have been meaningful in your life, then go out fellowship. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Do we find unity in denominational boundaries and doctrinal teaching, or do we find unity in Christ? Because that's not how I was raised. And this is still, this idea still permeates Christianity. That many organizations and groups believe that unity is found by making everyone, everyone else members of your, your organization. Evangelism is not bringing people to Christ. Evangelism is bringing people into an institution. And if, and in fact, to hear what I'm saying right now, there would be some that would, would be outraged and offended that I would suggest that you could bring people to Christ without bringing them to the institution. And that I'm attacking the institution by suggesting we should bring people to Christ. They're not the same, are they? Jesus said to the institution of his day, which was God-chosen, God-ordained institution, and all Christians agree on this, that the Jewish nation of Christ's day was God's chosen voice in church at the time. And Christ said to those, when you convert somebody to your institution, you make them twice the son of hell as you are. They weren't bringing them to Christ. 
Sunday's lesson refers to John chapter 17 when Jesus prayed for unity. And let's look at some of the verses in John 17, starting in verse 1. After Jesus said, said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. What does it mean? Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. How was Christ glorified and how did he glorify the Father? Where was Christ's most glorious moment? Was it resurrection morning, which was a glorious moment, to be sure, or was it Gethsemane and the cross? When was the most glorious moment? It was Gethsemane and the cross. This was where self-sacrificial love shone brightly. This is where Satan was exposed as a fraud. This is where um, love conquered selfishness. Yes? I was just going to say, you know, to me anyway, Christ's most glorious moment was the moment every morning when he spoke with his father. He'd get up early and the disciples, they saw this. They saw that he just, you know, he was so good, uh, refreshed, so well refreshed. And they wanted that experience too. It's a great model, that unity with the father. There's no question. We need to start our day like that, don't we? In fact, there's a... This is what the Old Testament sanctuary system was all about. The morning and evening sacrifice was a metaphor of us opening our hearts morning and evening to let the Spirit work in us. Self, you know, present yourself as a living sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. Yeah. Um, next verse. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. What does that mean? I think it means that Christ was given the responsibility to save the human race. But it means, given authority over all people that he might give eternal life. He's, you've given me the responsibility to come down here and fix what sin did so we can save these people. And then he goes on to tell you what, what eternal life is. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they may know you and they may know me. This is eternal life. It's very interesting. This is eternal life, that they may have the legal penalty paid for their sins. And you won't have to punish them and kill them, Dad. That's what it says. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What was his work? I have made you known. Verse uh, 5 and 6. Let's jump down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory, I have given them, notice, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, what's the purpose? Gave them the glory that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. What do you think that means? In everybody at one. Is this the atonement? This is the atonement. Jesus is talking about the at one when all are at one. And what is, what is, what does he say brings us to one? I have given them the glory you have given me that they may be one. What is the glory of God? His character. 
I have revealed your character glorifying you, and I have given this character to them. It's no longer I that live, Paul said, but Christ lives in me. I've written the law on the heart and mind. We get a new heart and right spirit. We have new character. We have unity of character, of motive, of method, of principle. We love God and love others more than self. This is unity. We are brought back into a unity of a kingdom of love. It is by coming back in the unity of God's character of love that we are reconciled to God. Lies are displaced, trust is reestablished, the Holy Spirit takes all Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. It is amazing, beautiful, powerful, and simple. God is love. He built his universe to operate on the design protocols of love. Sin is selfishness and, and, and destroys. Through Christ, God restores his universe back to love. That's, that's simple. Monday's lesson. New Testament illustration of unity uh, in the first, first paragraph. It says, The New Testament world of the first century was divided by caste, social status, and gender. It was a society in social turmoil. The concepts of equal rights, freedom, and human dignity were not the accepted norms. What uh, was the society of the world like 2,000 years ago in which the Bible writers were living? In method, was it very much different? In principle, in motive, was it very much different than our society today? Technologically, yes, but motive, method, and principle. In some ways, it was even worse, wasn't it? Government-sponsored slavery, government-sanctioned discrimination, government-sanctioned immorality, government-sanctioned violence, gladiators and arenas. I mean, we have our football, does that count? But we we, we, we don't do it to the death, do we? No. Not on purpose. Yeah. Government-sanctioned worship of paganism and so forth. Did Christ and the apostles, now think this through, did Christ and the apostles seek to change the government because it was abusive? What was the mission of the church when the church was led by Christ and the apostles? What was its mission? To win others. To win others, to change hearts, to, to reveal God, his kingdom of love. My kingdom is not of this world, Christ said. If it were, then my followers were fine. But it's not. My kingdom, I'm, I'm here to change hearts. My kingdom is the kingdom of love. What about today? What is supposed to be the mission of the church today? Reveal, reveal God, reveal the truth about God's kingdom, win hearts. From the world of selfishness and fear to the kingdom of love. That's supposed to be the mission. Is the church vulnerable to being derailed from its mission? How? Could the church be vulnerable to derailment through efforts to change the government? Absolutely. Abortion law, we've got to get those laws changed. Marriage law... We have to get those right candidates in in office to put the right Supreme Court justices in place. Has the recent laws regarding gay marriage brought more unity to the church? Or has the recent court rulings brought greater demonstration? Has, has Has the recent gay marriage rulings brought from the Christian community greater demonstrations of love, grace, kindness, and Christ like character? Have we responded with that? Yes. Didn't uh, the Pope just say, who am I to judge? Yeah. Yeah. The most, most prominent Christian, I guess, as far as overall fame. 
He did say that, didn't he? I thought that was unbelievable. <laughs> it was surprising, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, did, how has that been met? Is, he, is that the only voice out there? There are all kinds of voices saying, you know, if you don't believe the way I do, if you don't, if you don't want to change the laws, then we're going to bomb your clinics, we're going to kill your doctors, because, you know, that's the Christian thing to do. <laughs> what is happening that some Christians, or people with Christian name at least, are responding with actions other than love? What's happening? What's the motive for that? Could it be fear? Back to that we talked earlier. What causes this? Could it be fear? Could it, could could gay marriage really threaten people? Could it make them feel insecure and attacked? Do these rulings incite fear and cause them to justify unloving actions in order to protect protect what they believe is sacred? We must protect marriage. It's sacred. We must protect it. Is this any different than Muslim, Muslims who act unloving when someone profanes the prophet? Why do they do it? Why do they act that way? Why do they march and rally and and attack embassies and so forth? They believe they are protecting something sacred. Are such behaviors acts of love or motivated by fear? Is it not fear of God ultimately that causes these reactions? And if we see God as vindictive and vengeful and angry, then... Leaders or fathers or mothers or anybody that wants to be like God is going to act that same way. And, and, and I love where you're going with this. Everybody hearing her? And so if God is this way and he's going to do these things, then we can even construe in our minds that it's for their good that we're going to pass these laws. We're trying to protect them, and that's why we're going to burn them at the stake, and when they die, we're going to give them last rites so we can send their soul to heaven because we don't want their soul to go to hell. And they, we may torture them for a little while, but it's really for their best good that we're going to burn them. This is what happened. This is the same mental rationale that gave the Dark Ages and all the abuses that happened because God is going to torment them in hell and we're trying to protect them from that. Yes. One thing that I've thought about is that um, if if the ways of God and and God's government, if, if everything about God were to actually be carried out to its full end, it would just turn everything upside down about the way we do life. You know, and so that's also a big thing. It's like that whole thing, better one man die than all of us, you know? <laughs> it would turn the world upside down, yes. Well, the, uh, at the time that Jesus came, that was going on. That was, that was what the, the people okay. who purported to carry the law said, if you don't do this, God's going to get you. And it's a fear, and Jesus' love, and you know, love one another, that, that was contrary to their... So how should we as Christians respond when we believe the government is acting immorally? Like on the case of the gay marriage. Well, what are the Christian principles? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. First thing to remember, that the United States is not God's kingdom on earth. Now some people may really get upset at me for saying that. But, but it's not. The United States is not God's kingdom on earth. There is no earthly government that is God's kingdom on earth. It's not. It is a human government, and like all human governments, operates on imposed law, coercive tactics, and self, with, with self-centered men and women. We are to promote the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of one earthly government. And how do you describe the kingdom of God? It's the kingdom of love and truth. 
So how do we respond? We respond with love and with truth. And what is the truth? In our world, marriage has two aspects, the sacred and the legal. The governments of earth have the responsibility for the legal statutory aspects of human contract law, property, guardianship, inheritance, and so forth, including marriage and tax benefits and breaks. And the government has the responsibility to legally protect those contract, that contract law and decide who they want to give those benefits to. But human governments cannot and do not determine holiness, sacredness, sanctity, spiritual unity, God's blessings in associations and marriages. They can't do that. Not in their purview. Is it? No. So when a human government passes laws that homosexuals may marry, they can speak within the bounds of their authority and grant legal privileges for property, health care, decision-making, tax breaks, but they cannot make something holy or blessed. So do we get insecure or threatened, fearful, when activities are promoted that don't correspond to ours? Why should we? Why should we be threatened by that? Does somebody else's behavior take anything away from the blessing and grace and goodness and love and, and thing happening in your relationship? Does it? No. Yes. What do you do with the problem, though, where they, where they come into your church and say, you have to do this or something, you know, you have to perform these marriages and things? Um, I, I don't think there is any uh, government agency coming into any church saying that you have to perform marriages in churches. I don't think there's any agency doing that. The government isn't telling churches you have to perform weddings. No, it didn't. No, that's a misinformation. The Catholic health care system and contraception uh, was only if you take government money, you have to provide these services. But, you don't, but you're free not to take the government money. But if you money, then, the, then string, these strings are attached to the money. But you don't have to take the money, so you can do anything you want on your dime. That's all that was. And then it got turned to this other thing. Yes, Wendell. The only people that are constrained by that are the government employees, such as um, government chaplains and the armed services are required to perform services um, for all. That, that is true. In the armed services, um, and that's part of the thing, but are, are people in the armed services re- currently drafted against their will and forced to do these things, or is it a voluntary service, and you know ahead of time going in that when you go in, these are the expectations of this role that you're going to have? So it's still not against someone's will. And so it's no different than, than a, uh, a Muslim chaplain or a Catholic or Jewish or Protestant chaplain has to provide the, the a Protestant chaplain has to provide last rights to a Catholic soldier who is dying on the battlefield, even though they may not believe in last rights. They still have to have to do that. And we understand the purpose for this, don't we? To respect the soldier's faith. That's the, the purpose. It's not an imposition against someone's will. Yes. Lori asks, why is the SDA church taking offense toward gays? I have many questions coming in, but you're moving very fast today, yeah. and way behind. Yeah, and we're not going to we're not going to actually spend a lot of time on the on the gay issue today. It's not the focus of the lesson. The focus of the lesson is how do we respond to these things with the sense of grace and unity. Um, in fact, there's some other things that I, I want to jump to. So let, why don't we do that? Um, Tuesday's lesson. 
the, uh, the second paragraph, the disciples were consumed with something much larger than themselves. Christ's uh, commission to take the gospel to the entire world swallowed up their personal ambitions. The church cannot reach the community without the gospel until, until it is united. But it will never be united until it is consummated with the preaching of the gospel. So we can't take the gospel until we're united, but we can't be united until we hear the gospel. The right gospel. The right gospel. I, I think there's some truth in this. How would you describe the gospel? The good news that needs to go to the world. Is it not the truth about God's character of love? Is it anything other than that? No, that's, that's the central meaning. So, and I want to thank this class here and abroad and those watching us in, in the internet for, for all the prayer, all the support that you give this ministry. Um, because we have, we are reaching, we are reaching worldwide audiences now. I get emails and, and letters from all over about how this message is penetrating and reaching. And because of that, the devil's a roar, roaring lion, lion seeking him. He's not happy. And we're getting more opposition and ugly things are mounting. Uh, this week, a, uh, I got notified that, you know, I'm going to Australia and Singapore here you know, to do a series, a whole series of presentations on this material. And uh, one of the venues got canceled. Um, is this, it was one of the minor venues, so it's not a major deal, but one, one speaking engagement got canceled because uh, the chaplain who, who originally agreed, somebody came and misrepresented and told lies about what we teach, and, and he wouldn't discuss with the local person there any of his concerns. He just said, no, we're going to cancel it. So, um, so you guys keep praying that the Holy Spirit will impress hearts and minds, prepare them for what we're going to present, and, and that we'll have uh, give me the words to speak in a clear way when we're there. Um, and I know many of you are praying, and we, we do appreciate that. Um, the lesson speaks about present truth in the lesson as well. And that the church has been given the mission to prepare the world for Christ's return. And it says in the lesson, the message of the three angels of Revelation 14 is the, quote, everlasting gospel in the context of judgment of obedience and the Lord's return. What do you think the idea of the gospel in the context of judgment Can it be presented? Can the three angels' messages, which we believe are a message to basically say, hey, Jesus is coming back, prepare to meet him, prepare your hearts and minds, so when he comes, we will be like him, as it says in Scripture. That's what we basically believe the message is trying to say. Can it be presented in such a way that it actually obstructs the gospel rather than presenting the gospel? The everlasting gospel is about God's character of love. What if we present this gospel is Jesus dying to pay the penalty in the context of God sitting in judgment of sin and Jesus pleading with his father to hold back the father's wrath and if you don't get your penalty paid, then God will use his power to execute you and kill you. Are we presenting the gospel or obstructing it? We're obstructing it. That's what it is. We're obstructing This is not the gospel. This is a lie. It's my, it's my position that's what's happened. That's why Christ hasn't come. Because the gospel of the kingdom has not gone to the world. This other thing, this imposed imperial Roman construct of God like a Roman emperor sitting in the universe, putting down rules and then punishing disobedience, this thing has gone to the world. And we are called in, in Revelation 14 to, if you remember the first angel's message, worship him who made. We're called back to worship the designer the builder, his law of love, the protocols by which life is built, and stop worshiping the dictator, which is what Christianity worships. Wednesday's lesson. That's what I really wanted to get to this. You'll have fun with this lesson, guys. Last two paragraphs in Wednesday's lesson. It says, The Jerusalem Council saved the first century church from serious schism. Church organization with, with administration, with, with administrative authority, was essential in preserving the doctrinal integrity of the New Testament church. 
In this instance, local church representatives were sent to Jerusalem to participate in doctrinal discussions, which would have serious implications for the future of the church. Once this representative group came to a consensus, they wrote out their decisions in the committee action and circulated it through the churches where the problems had originated. Members accepted the decision of the Jerusalem Council and rejoiced that the Holy Spirit had guided them to an answer to their dilemma. (laughs) What do you think they're implying by this? For unity in the church. So, when the church leadership meets in general conference session and vote that women can't be ordained, then that's the, that's the that's the Holy Spirit speaking. Rejoice, rejoice, and everyone should bow and say Amen, and and there shouldn't be any more questions or disagreements. So, so if that's the idea, and and that's exactly, I'm going to tell you, I've, I've seen broadcasts on 3BN where church leaders took this position, and I'm going to give you a quote from one of the founders of our church here in a minute, that they used to support this very idea regarding ordination of women. That the, the, the conference voted, that's God's will, boom! No more dissension, no more discussion, no more thinking for yourself. Yes? Didn't the problem that they're referring to originate with the church leaders having a problem with the, the Greeks coming in? It wasn't the Greeks' problem, it was the problem with the church organization. Ooh, good insight. Did y'all hear that? Yeah, so they're converting people, and this, this, they're following the Bible method of conversion is preach Jesus, Holy Spirit convicts, baptize. Remember, remember the, remember the, the slave, I mean, the, the eunuch and Philip? What hinders us? There's water. Well, we have 28 fundamental beliefs that we have to present to you first. And you need to spend six months in indoctrinational classes. You notice, not doctrinal, indoctrinational class, being indoctrinated. Okay? And, and so, yes, yeah, so you have to quit smoking. You got to give up your job. You got to get the right diet. You got to lose twenty-five pounds, and you get. I mean, you know. And so, your point is well taken. They were converting people, exactly as the uh, the biblical model is: present Jesus, heart convicts, boom, baptize, and they come in with practices that the council of that made up of a bunch of former Jews with their Pharisaical laws were uncomfortable with. And they started needing to make rules. And so the council, I agree with you, at Jerusalem was primarily to get the leadership off the back of the people. Wow, that's a great insight. Thank you so much. Now, let, let, me, let me go on. I think we can have fun with this. This idea then, if this is the right idea, that we should allow the leadership from on high, in session, vote, word of God, well then, why didn't Martin Luther... He had his questions. He went to the leadership. They voted. He's wrong. He should have just quietly gone along then. Hmm. He was before the remnant. <laughs> he was before the remnant. All righty. So here's a quote written in 1875. This was written in 1875. This is used. used by those who would take this position. And notice the date, 1875. I have been shown. You know those words. I have been shown. I have been shown that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man. But when the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independent, independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but be surrendered. Wow. All righty, before I go on, anybody uncomfortable yet? <laughs> Or are you, uh, or you have your own minds and you're saying, that's okay, I can still think for myself because people who have inspired insights, Apostle Peter came to our church and gave a sermon on how we shouldn't associate with people who dress and eat in certain ways. 
And I said, amen, Holy Spirit led. But Paul stood up and said he was wrong. So, so we have this idea that, that inspired and, and Holy Spirit led people are always right. Or that they can have insights that change as they grow in their own journey. So this same person writes a little later. First one was 1875. This is 1888. If it were possible, the enemy would clog the wheels of progress and prevent the truths of the gospel from being circulated everywhere. With this object, he, the enemy, leads men to feel that it is their privilege to control the consciences of their fellow men according to their own perverted ideas. They dismiss the Holy Spirit from their councils, and under the power and name of the general conference, they invent regulations through which they compel men to be ruled by their own ideas and not by the Holy Spirit. The plans to obtain control of human minds and ability are as strange fire. Remember that metaphor is referring to strange fire brought before the Lord back in the Old Testament as a strange fire, which is an offense to God. And who are those who dare engage in this work? Dare engage in this work of passing, you shouldn't ordain women. Control your consciences. Who, who, who would do this? Men who have revealed that they do not have self-control, that they are not divested of selfishness. Unless these men shall themselves turn to the Lord, they will die in their sins. There is scarcely a vestige of genuine truth remaining in them. This is pretty scathing. I didn't write this, guys. I didn't write this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the effort to manage others, which is made by those who cannot, the effort to manage others, which is made by those who cannot manage themselves, is one of the greatest fallacies that could exist. Let those who love to rule begin to work where it should have begun years ago. Let them rule themselves and show that they are in subordination to God's rule, that they have been converted at heart. Then they will at least not make their fellow men groan under the weight of a galling yoke of their restrictive policy. Then there will be fewer prayers sent up to heaven in anguish of heart because of their selfish oppression. How many Christians have been in systems under oppressive rule and regulations trying to keep this burdensome restriction that the system puts upon them, praying to God for deliverance from this? This is not godly. I love this. Isn't this beautiful stuff? Yeah. Well, Paul and Colossians address that exactly, saying don't, don't let others judge how you, how you worship or how you... Uh, exactly. Uh, to break those. Uh, exactly right. Yes, yes, exactly right. So, how many have failed to experience grace, peace, love, joy because someone in leadership has made religion an onerous and restrictive set of rules and burdens? Should we blindly surrender to the general conference? How about here's here's that was 1888. This one's 1898. It has been some years since I have considered the general conference as the voice of God. <laughs> 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 okay, this one, 1901. 1901. One day at noon, I was writing of the work that might have been done at the last 1901 General Conference if the men in positions of trust had followed the will and way of God. Those who have had great light have not walked in the light. The meeting was closed and the break was not made. Men did not humble themselves before the Lord as they should have done, and the Holy Spirit was not imparted. Uh, do you feel more comfortable now questioning the rules coming out of the General Conference? Oh, I'm glad she said it, and we didn't have to think of that on our own. Yes. Where 
Thank you very much. That's excellent. The first quote I read was in the 1888 materials, page 1527 and 1528. The second quote was, you can find in two places, manuscript release 216 or last day events, page 50. And the third quote is last day events, page 57. Thank you very much for that. Yes. So, any comments or thoughts about this? No wonder they sent her to Australia. For those that don't know the history of the Advent Church, um, this particular writer, uh, was, was the General Conference leadership, sent her to Australia because she was writing these things to get her. And back in the 1880s and so forth, you know, Australia was a long way. No, no, no you know, instant messaging, no Facebook, no Skype. No telephones, okay? Long way away. Let's get her as far away. And I was looking at the map because we're heading there. We're heading there. And, and literally, seriously, you look at the map of where we are and where Australia is, it is the farthest basic distant point you can get from where we are on this planet. It's exactly the opposite on the other, just like a line that goes straight through the opposite part of the pole. Yes, it's all hand somewhere. Yes. In the Adventist world, there's somewhere between... Four to six hundred different ministries uh, uh, on their own. Let's say uh, self uh, self supporting ministries, independent, let's independent say. ministries. Yeah, yes, from, from a, a core organization. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get a little nervous about that. But one of the things that they show is that it is possible to exist and go ahead and carry out your convictions that you have a ministry that you're not. Uh, dependent on somebody's approval and that you can bust the authority of that controlling group. What you all think of that? Basically he's saying, and is that because of the church or is that because of our constitution? Yeah. <laughs> the freedom you just described. Is it because of the church or because of the constitution? I think it's, it's constitutional, personally. I think that we have the freedom to do this because of the land in which we live, not because of necessarily the hierarchical organization grants us that freedom. That's why we're in the courthouse, not in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a quote from one of the pioneers, uh, again, same person. This is out of the book Desire of Ages, page 232. As the light and life of men was rejected by the ecclesiastical authorities in the days of Christ, what this means is that Jesus was rejected by church leadership. So it has been rejected in every succeeding generation. Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea has been repeated. When the reformers preached the word of God, they had no thought of separating themselves from the established church. But the religious leaders would not tolerate the light. And those that bore it were forced to seek another class who were longing for the truth. In our day, few of the professed followers of the reformers are actuated by their spirit. Few are listening to the voice of God and ready to accept truth in whatever guise it may be presented. Often those who follow in the steps of the reformers are forced to turn away from the churches they love in order to declare the plain teaching of the word of God. And many times those who are seeking for light are by the same teaching obliged to leave the churches of their fathers that they may render obedience. Isn't that sad and sombering? Do you think that's wrong or do you think it's right? True or false? Sad though, isn't it? Sad. Do we expect that the gospel message to lighten the world for Christ's return is going to happen 
by waiting on the leadership of the General Conference to lead us to it. It's not going to happen. It's up to us. We have to do it. In spite of their support. Isn't it true? So I'm, yeah, so I, I appreciate again all you guys so much because we are reaching when this message is going forward. So don't be discouraged. Embrace the truth about God's character of love and dedicate yourselves to sharing it. And I know many of you have come to me and tell me stories about how in your communities you're sharing this message with people and you're seeing lives being changed. And, and uh, Dennis told me at the beginning of class today that uh, he was sharing this in a, uh, with a woman recently uh, over in Ringgold and uh, he went back for a follow-up visit for his job and she was just so enthusiastic and thankful. I'm free, she said, I'm free from all these burdens that she's lived under, these restrictive concepts for so long. So, if you haven't experienced that kind of joy, then share, (laughs) because you will. It's freeing. Thursday's lesson, in closing, every Christian saw his brother a revelation of divine love and benevolence. One One interest prevailed. One subject of emulation swallowed up all other. The ambition of the believer was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. What did Christ pray? I have given them glory that they, the glory that you've given me, that they might be one. And we just, and we already established that that glory is what? His character. And this says here, the ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character and to labor for the enlargement of his kingdom. This is our mission. To be like Christ. To be like Christ in character. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you're a God of love who, when you built your universe, designed it to operate on the beautiful principles of beneficence and giving and love. Sadly, Lord, this earth is a place in which your kingdom does not prevail at the moment, but is under attack by fear and selfishness. And so much hurt and injury happens. We pray that uh, the lies that have permeated our thinking might be exposed, that we might embrace the truth, be set free, and your spirit might be poured out to, to transform us to, to live a life of love for you and love for others, and that we can lighten this world. We pray that you will go before us as we are going out to present this message in Singapore and Australia, that you will send your spirit ahead and prepare hearts and minds and your angels to watch and protect, and that, that the, the people who hear this message will have their hearts thrilled with love for you and that the world will be lighted, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.